beauty and skincare is always a hot topic around here, and today I want to tell you about a new product line I've discovered that I think you will like, Exponent Beauty. Listeners of the show will receive 20% off their purchase. More details on that in a minute. Exponent Beauty is a skincare brand with a line of activated anti-aging serums that are clinically proven to reduce fine lines and wrinkles. The beauty of Exponent Beauty is their innovative form factor. The powders are activated with a quadruple hyaluronic acid serum in their patented precision-dosed dispenser. The packaging is gorgeous, and the dispenser itself is refillable, so it has also reduced plastic waste. Exponent Beauty's line of serums can be found in med spas and spas and dermatologists' office around the country. The line is dermatologist-recommended and clinically proven to reduce those fine lines and wrinkles, and to increase brightness and radiance, and to firm skin without irritation. No more expired or underutilized products with Exponent Beauty, just high-quality skincare with ingredients that work. Go to ExponentBeauty.com and use code TELL20 for 20% off a purchase of $100 or more. That's Exponent, E-X-P-O-N-E-N-T, Beauty, B-E-A-U-T-Y.com and use code TELL20, T-E-L-L, the numbers two zero for 20% off your purchase of $100 or more. this bonus episode of the 10 Things to Tell You podcast. I'm happy to share with you this conversation I had with author Jenna Arnold about her new book, Raising Our Hands, How White Women Can Stop Avoiding Hard Conversations, Start Accepting Responsibility, and Find Our Place on the New Front Lines. Someone linked to this book on Instagram back in June, and I was so intrigued by the title that I pre-ordered it and read it as soon as it came out in July. For me, the book was a primer for a lot of the conversations that are taking place in the United States right now around race and gender equality, around grappling with the hardest parts of history, and of course, taking into account that white women are the most powerful voting bloc in the country. And are we using that power wisely? Before I share the conversation, I want to tell you a little bit about my guest, Jenna Arnold is an educator, entrepreneur, activist, and mother who lives in New York City with her husband and two children. Jenna is currently the chief impact officer for an impact investing platform, Rethink, funding companies working to solve some of the world's most complex problems, equitable education, food distribution, climate sustainability, community growth, and empowering women and minority populations. She's the co-founder of Organize a nonprofit focused on ending the waitlist for organ transplants in the U.S. For her work at Organize, Jenna was named one of Inc.'s 20 Most Disruptive Innovators, and Oprah herself named Jenna as one of her 100 awakened leaders who are using their voice and talent to elevate humanity. How's that for an endorsement? Her book is called Raising Our Hands, and I will link to it and to Jenna in the show notes, which you can always find by going to 10thingstotellyou.com slash podcast. And now to the show. Jenna, welcome to 10 Things to Tell You. I'm so glad that you're here. I read your book this summer and just really enjoyed it. I wanted to press it into so many of my friends' hands, and so I am thrilled 
to have you on the show today. Thank you for having me. Okay, so tell the listener a little bit, if they are not familiar with you, tell us a little bit about yourself. It's always a difficult question for me to answer because there's certain ways that you could describe the work that I do, whether it's activists or some people have suggested the type of work that I'm drawn to is like disruptive work or like changing systems. But like, I don't really honestly know what an activist is or what disruption actually looks like. There's so much that I'm like, let's wait for like 10, 15 years from now to figure out exactly what it is that I did to see if it made a difference. But right now, my full-time job is trying to get my kid not to wet his bed every night. And um, I am also the author of a book, Raising Our Hands. And the subtitle is How White Women Can Stop Avoiding Hard Conversations, Start Accepting Responsibility, and Find Our Place on the New Front Lines. But The job I love most is that of a private citizen that is asking hard questions of myself and the people around me, our systems, our structures, and trying to figure out how I can contribute to make it better. Are you comfortable with the title disruptor? Like, are you like- I really don't know what it means. I think it's like, it's a headache for anyone to be like, oh, there's a disruptor coming into the space. And it's also a headache to be a disruptor because it has a negative connotation and it doesn't feel particularly helpful. But I feel like I'm most enthusiastic by posing challenging questions of myself and of other people and practices. And sometimes those answers- can be disruptive. And that I'm okay with getting to an answer that we're not really proud of and that being the fuel to propel us to do better. So I don't think I'm necessarily a disruptor. My friend Simon Sinek and I spend a lot of time talking about exactly what this is. And I prefer to consider myself a potster than a disruptor. I come from a huge family. I'm one of 25. I'm the oldest of 25. Just to clarify that for all of my family members who are listening, I am the oldest. And therefore, at times I can carry the largest spoon when it comes to like family baggage or, you know, we all know the the words and language and assumptions and passive aggressive comments we can say to really get under each other's skin. So we as a family joke about stirring the pot. So I think I'm a pot stirrer more than I'm a disruptor. I just have to clarify that you mean you're the oldest of 25 cousins, right? Correct. Not 25 children. I say that so casually all the time and people's jaws do drop. Yes. To be very, very clear, I'm the oldest of 25 great-grandchildren. Okay. So before we get into why you wrote this book and how you wrote this book, because I do think the process is super fascinating, I just want to acknowledge sort of the elephant in the room of we are both white women. We are both you know, above and beyond privileged by any measure and that we are having this conversation about, you know, race and history and change and all of this kind of thing. I think this is really important, but I, I feel like we have to acknowledge it. And I wonder if you're getting a little bit of pushback there. I know, I think you say in the beginning of your book that it's controversial that you as a white woman wrote this type of book. Did you have anything you wanted to say about that? Thank you for asking a really important question because what we both as citizens, as women, as women who are cisgendered, heterosexual, resourced, I'm not familiar with your religious or philosophical background, but there there are org charts that have been intentionally structured in this country and globally that protect certain kinds of people who have certain cards in their hand when they're born. And being a white woman talking about inequity is is an interesting place for me to sit. 
what I try to stress in all of my conversations with folks and what I did in the book was say, I'm not a scholar, I'm a student of this work. I am an expert on white women's performative behavior, pretending perfection, the cognitive acrobatics that we wield so that we don't have to look at the truth. But the truth is itself, I'm still a student of. And I say I'm in first grade on those subjects and I might graduate to second at some point in my lifetime. But I chose to write this book because as one of the organizers of the Women's March in 2017, I stood on stage in DC and looked out at a sea of pink hats And just qualitatively from my vantage point, it looked like most of the people wearing them were white women. And now taking sort of my very observational view and backing that into 54% of American white women voted for Trump in 2016, and then trying to reconcile that with the white women who I'm very close with, who are responsible for raising me, who took me to third world countries to build homes, and having watched them make a decision in the voting booth that was very contradictory to my decision, but then also what I felt like was contradictory to the values that they have taught me and that they've lived by, something wasn't adding up. And if you take a pause and really study the scholars, both historically and today, there are requests and sometimes the requests can be contradicting in themselves, which is a point we'll get to later about this idea of we can sit in the existence of many truths at one time. But many folk and the one that I point to all the time is Malcolm X, who later in his career, um, in his autobiography, he said there's a very important role of white people calling in other white people, talking about the very specific lived experience of white folks in this country, unpacking it, identifying components, behaviors, strategies, habits in ways that sometimes only white people can have that kind of experience. So when I think about my job right now, and when I think about this conversation, I hope we serve as a conduit, not an educator, but a conduit to those who can speak greater truth to the questions that we're trying to ask. And so I knew in stepping into writing this book, I was like, wait a second, I'm actually not clear about my history. I'm not clear about my influence. And when I say influence, I mean political influence, socioeconomic influence, how loud my voice can really be. I wasn't clear about subjects related to gender, disability status, class, race. I wasn't clear on some of those things and how I was either being part of the solution or being part of the problem by not actively being part of the solution. And so I think the hypothesis of the book is that if I can help white women ask harder questions of themselves, they'll get closer to clarity, which has often been the clarity and the requests of scholars and activists representing marginalized communities for decades, asking them to do certain things. But you know, at one point in my life, a decade ago, I didn't think I saw color. And it was because of a very close friend of mine who said, hey, Jenna, uh, you don't see what you don't see. And this is problematic. And here's why, et cetera, et cetera. And that set me off on this course. And in this moment, in this minute on this page in history, which people have been asking me to define, and I am pleading the fifth for another 25 years from now, because I don't know how to wrap my arms around what's happening right now. But what I do know is that everyone's ears are perked differently. 
And because we all have that different hand of cards, there's an opportunity for certain folks to get in a different place in line as it applies to the solutions. And sometimes they need somebody else who's had that very specific lived experience to say, hey, here, it's over here. Yeah, that's all exactly how I took the book. I felt like you were modeling for the reader, presumably the white woman reader, because that's who you're mostly writing to. That's who the tagline is addressing. Like that you've sort of, you're, you're maybe a few steps ahead of your reader, but that you're in it with them and that you are also learning and, you know, trying to do better. And Another thing that I really liked about your book, as you're, you know, you share your own stories, but it also felt like to me kind of a primer for a lot of the conversations that are happening, but that sometimes white women don't know, and I put myself in this category, they don't even know what to ask. They're not even sure what to Google. Like they don't even know where to start. And so for me, I felt like you're, you gave some real basics, some real 101 about some of these issues like race, inequality, uh, some of the whitewashing of history, all of those things that... I felt like it was condensed into one place and that was really helpful for me. And that is another reason that it made me want to share it because I think if you come in to the middle of the conversation, which a lot of people are, they're just walking into the middle of this conversation. If they don't know where to start, they're just going to back away slowly. That's right. Particularly because this conversation, which for some people is now three months old for others, it's um, been happening for hundreds of years. And then for others, it's been happening for thousands of years. And by way of the indigenous have been experiencing this for thousands of years, the formerly enslaved for the past 400 ish years and 400, I say ish because it's really been longer than 400. And, and so, you know, I have a lot of, I did not watch the George Floyd video because I watched the Eric Garner video years ago. And that was that propelled me in ways that I, that clearly the George Floyd video did for so many other people. And what happened with Floyd and that video is a rerun for so many folks. And so suddenly everyone sees that video, though the Eric Gardner video exists as well. But that seeing in that moment of this time catapulted society, systems, boardrooms, PL sheets, equity, you know, like equity charts. Like, I mean, the amount of people who are like, wait a second, is my boardroom white supremacist? Wait, am I a white supremacist? Like, I'm floored that those two words are in some of the people's mouths who have been talking to me and reaching out to me. And it's because of that. So, so there's suddenly this like moment of like, you know, I have Trump voting folks calling me and saying, hey, can we talk about that reparations thing for a second? And there's language and there's theories and ideas and ideologies and strategies that have been mulled over and contemplated and needed the light of day for decades, if not centuries. And now suddenly everyone's in that class. And it's hard. It can be hard. At least I found it hard when I was entering this work to jump into the AP class on this subject without going all the way back to the like, wait, why did my ancestors not do something about this then? Wait, what were they telling them then? And how did I get to this moment? And why is my education degree is not just because of my test scores that meritocracy might not actually exist. So in order for me to get 
to a place where I could participate and catch up. I had to like do this work. And when I like started raising my hand to do it, I was looking around looking for this book. I needed to read this book so I can participate. And when I realized it didn't exist, I wrote it. With sunshine, outdoor activities, and so many fun things to do outside, it is impossible not to enjoy all of these good weather days up ahead. Of course, we all know that more sun and fun means more sweating and, yes, more odor. That's why I'm excited to tell you about Lumi. Lumi is the first of its kind in the full-body deodorant world and is seriously safe to use on any and every part of your body. It was created by an OBGYN who saw firsthand how regular body odor was being misdiagnosed and mistreated. I especially love that Lumi deodorant is baking soda and paraben-free. It is also pH-balanced for safe use on all areas of your body. You can choose from a variety of fresh scents like clean tangerine, lavender sage, and toasted coconut. Lumi's starter pack is perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice like a mini body wash or deodorant wipes, and free shipping. As a special offer for listeners, new customers get $5 off a Lumi starter pack with code U at lumideodorant.com. That equates to 40% off your starter pack when you visit Lumi, L-U-M-E, deodorant, D-E-O-D-O-R-A-N-T, com and use code U Y O U. And it came out in absolutely the most perfect time, the zeitgeist of people wanting to know more and do better and evolve as a society. And then out came your book. I know that we wouldn't have wanted to predict the year that has unfolded here, but it is really perfect timing that has landed for people to have right now. Let's talk about your research and the listening circles, your process around writing this book, because I thought this was fascinating. It's something that I kind of want to do in my own life. So can you just tell us a little bit about how you gathered the information and the perspectives to write the book? Sure. So I organized what I titled listening circles. And I feel like I should say this publicly. And I realized in this moment, I haven't, I can't stand the term listening circle. I just never had a minute to think about something else. And like, I, so I'm open to any other cooler way to brand these things, but I called them listening circles. And what I did was I was most interested in asking existential questions of American white women. What are you willing to fight for besides your children? Um, what's your greatest regret? How has America failed you? Has America failed you? So, you know, 30,000 foot perspectives with the objective of not letting you get political, though inevitably sometimes it did in always productive ways. But, and so I went and organized white women and I sliced and diced the demographic in as stereotypical of a way as I could playing scientist, which I am not playing journalist, which I am not. And so I hosted listening circles with super rich Jewish women in the suburbs of Philly to evangelical young moms in Connecticut to atheists progressives, radicals, arguably neoliberalists in Brooklyn. So I took white women as a racial demographic and I sat them in a room and we drank a lot and we ate a lot of cheese and crackers and we asked, and I asked them questions. And it wasn't, Laura, you know, it's interesting because like it was so clear quickly what was happening and what they were saying, how they were wrestling with their understanding of social justice issues, with their understanding of their relationship with the people in their lives who they might not necessarily see eye to eye with. 
And it was all a reflection of everyone's discomfort with the structure and the systems that we see around us. And I say those words now much more freely than I did pre-COVID because I think we understand how systems protect, how systems work, how systems fail in ways that we might not have really appreciated before. So I asked hard questions of women who have had similar life experiences to me to figure out what was getting in their way of giving a shit. And um, that's chapter two. But were you like, I'm, I'm asking this because I do something similar with this show, but not in person. So I'm genuinely curious, what was your objective? Were you truly trying to see how these different demographics, because the ones you've just described don't sound exactly like you. I mean, besides that they're privileged white women. So like, were you trying to sort of get their perspective? Were you trying to get them to open their mind? What, what, what were you doing? Yeah, that's a good, that's a good question. I appreciate, I appreciate you pushing the question further. So what I was trying to figure out was, were there any universal truths? Were there any universal strategies that I could unpack and get ahead of and think about how we could workshop it? And I did, I figured out, or I saw components that felt true to all of us, regardless of God, socioeconomic, religious, gender, sexuality, disability. I saw things that felt uniquely part of the American narrative that my hypothesis gets in the way of women owning their power. And I'm, again, I've been like tripping over language over the past couple of months because I think language is just so futile in this moment. But I'm careful with the term power, but in pointing to sort of just the concrete math, white American women are the largest voting bloc in the U.S. and they will control 56 Senate seats through 2060, even when white folks are the minority. They control 85% of the U.S. economy, which is larger than like 100 countries combined. Like it's, it's more, it, there's more economic control based on the decisions we make regarding toothpaste and cars and universities and, you know, flip-flops than like half of the world's population. And we're responsible for mostly raising white men and white men being at the top of the patriarchal white supremacist system. You know, we have to be held accountable for how we're having conversations and raising our sons, right? I mean, there's an extraordinary amount of influence and currency that this demographic has. And my hypothesis is she doesn't know it. And if she did, she would take her job much more seriously. And so I unpacked a number of truths that felt universal. And sometimes people try to like back themselves out and are like, Jenna, that doesn't, that rule doesn't apply. And I can pretty quickly figure out how it does. For example, One of them is this concept of pretending perfection. And so the American narrative encourages us to deliver on something that feels tidy and sorted and organized. It's because I think in part due to the way that we tell the story of this country, it's relatively organized. You had these men who were seven foot seven, zero percent body fat, who always knew exactly what to do at every single moment. And whoops, a couple of times they made some really bad mistakes, but guess what? 
they fixed it. And you know what? It's our job to bless the world with our brilliance and our capacity. And so when we go into like organizing our professional lives or organizing our, our homes or our landscaping or the way our social media feeds look, in a way, I think they try to catch up to this story this glossed over, highly filtered story of who we are and how we all got to this moment. So we spend a lot of time chasing some perfection. And sometimes people will say to me, Jenna, I don't, I don't, there's nothing that I'm trying to be perfect with. And I'm like, you sure? You sure it's not your landscaping or your Kugel recipe? What about that quarterback son of yours? Is he perfect? Is he, is that the deliverable you have to the world? And again, like if you're listening, you could probably, if you're, Like that part of you that's like, I don't actually want to answer that question. That means that's the thing, right? And like, I can tell you what my thing is and my thing shifts all the time. So so there's a little bit of that that was like universal across the demographics. Performance chores, this, you know, like always being, I I use the term initially in the book, but a sensitivity editor, um, Mia Eves-Rouble, who everyone should follow. She's a follow. She's a phenomenal disability activist. But I use the term initially psychotically nice that we're all like really, really nice. Oh, that's so exciting to each other. I am, and I I edited the word psychotically out because that's a, a very serious disease, but this like obsessively nice to each other stuffness that happens at country clubs and cocktail parties and things like that. So there's a lot of like those types of performance chores, which I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't be kind and considerate to each other, but I think we could probably all admit that sometimes we spend a lot of time having very superficial conversations with each other when we're really dying for deep connection. We're dying for authentic, like, actually, I feel really bad about myself today. And we're rarely able to put that in the middle of a room. Rarely. Yeah, that's the whole premise of this show, actually, is to share your stuff with someone, is to take the prompts from each episode. Normally, my you know, main feed episodes, ask a question and you're supposed to take the question to someone else and ask them. Because I do think that we are all dying for connection. You know, we're lonely for all kinds of reasons and I don't want to spin off into that tangent, but I totally agree with you. And another point, you know, that's adjacent to that, that really struck me when I was reading your book about why women are not raising their hands besides perfection is I wrote it down because you call it in the book, the privileged side of silence. And I see this in my feeds, actually less so in 2020, but in general, I've just seen, you know, people are trying to keep harmony in their families and their extended families. If they're in a small town, then they're trying to keep harmony in a community if they feel differently or if they're going to have to see that person at Walmart. You know, there's lots of reasons that we stay silent and mostly it's because it's easier. Even now, and I have put myself out there in lots of ways over the last few years, but even now, if I think, ugh, I don't want to deal with the backlash of this. I don't want to have a hard conversation with a family member I'm not in the mood to get into it in comments today. And I know it's not all about social media. Of course, it's just the easiest example. And so I don't know. I feel like when you were listening to people in the listening circles, did you find that the that people chose to, to be silent? Is that passive or were people like, oh yeah, like I purposely don't even delve into any of this? Yes. I found that 84% of white women avoid conversations about politics to maintain cordial relationships with people. 84% of the most 
influential, one of the most influential demographics in the country, let alone world, do not have difficult conversations because they, 63% of us, believe it is our job to keep the peace. And it has been. They've been life's cheerleaders, be it in, you know, constructing the house, building, designing, curating what life is ultimately going to look like. I call them the chief air traffic controllers of, of, of life in general. And they're also in charge of like licking everybody's wounds when they need them. And the last thing that they want to do is necessarily create atmospheres that are uncomfortable for people because we are not raised in a community or in a society that creates space for healthy conversation and debate. Like even I find sometimes when people are like debating what's happening in the world, they get really fact throwy. And I'm a big fan of having difficult conversations without facts, which is a controversial position to take because the facts, be it around um, how Black women are dying nine to 12 times more often in New York City hospitals during labor than white women, or the fact that the United States has the highest incarceration rate in the world. You know, all of the facts that are heartbreaking for us to confront, it's it's hard not to like sit in those facts, but sometimes I find those facts hard to comprehend, right? I used to, when I was doing um, marketing and building out campaigns at the UN, I would often use this example that there are there's 4,500 kids. And this actually, this statistic 4,500 is a bit outdated. So it's like 10 years old. I don't know what the number is today, but I, then it was 4,500 kids are dying every single day because they don't have access to water and sanitation. That's dying by diarrhea essentially. But like to put that number out there, it's hard to be like, what's 4,500 kids look like? But if you're like, here's little Joey who loves art, loves soccer. This is his favorite teddy bear. And you do this whole narrative and then you're like, oh, he's not going to wake up tomorrow because he's dehydrated. Like that changes things. So there's a part of me that's like, when we, when you show up into difficult conversations with facts and statistics, it turns into a fact war and facts are super, super stubborn. I have seen different sides of a political perspective, specifically with my experience in the organ donation space. I was the co-founder of an organization called Organize, looking to solve the organ donation crisis. And we both had the same Excel spreadsheet of the amount of lives that were saved through transplantation. And we both had the same numbers. Those are very, very concrete numbers, the amount of lives that were saved. And one side spun it to say, we're doing a great job. And the other side, us spun it and said, you're not meeting the mark. You're not doing everything you can. So like statistics can be as manipulated as anything. So in stepping into those difficult conversations, I often say white women won't necessarily engage unless they can perfectly, we'll say if it's about gun control, they're not going to perfectly enter a conversation about guns unless they can articulate gun show loophole and background checks, perfectly convince the person that they're having a dialogue with to transition to their perspective, perfectly exit the conversation and get an A on the whole experience, they're not going to do it. Like this idea of like, I really need to know my statistics. I really need to know what I'm talking about. And I often say like, even to the women that I work with who are gun owning, gun loving women who are distraught about what's happening with guns in our country, I can say, well, you could just hold the line of, you have a really big problem with what's happening on the South side of Chicago or in first grade classrooms. You don't have to move from that, right? That's like a character. That's a character conversation. Um, Same thing going into this election. It's not necessarily a, do you know how many lives could have been saved if we 
acted on the impending pandemic or if we had structured that differently or do you know how many people are currently in concentration camps on the border? Do you know how much money he saved with the already 0.001% of the world? Like you can do all that stuff or you can say, I'm really, really scared about what's happening in our country. And I don't know if I can articulate it correctly, but I'm uncomfortable. I see too much division. I don't know who to believe. I'm not sure that our systems are really accommodating people the way that they should. I want to participate, but I don't know where. I don't know how to get news. I don't know how to talk to somebody about something difficult. I'm scared. How are you feeling? Start there instead. Because that's the truth. Is that what you suggest... As this, as the starting point, because I was going to ask you next, actually, it goes perfectly into, I was going to ask, like, what are we supposed to actually do, even armed with the information, even if it's not statistical information, but like, once you are sort of in the place of like, oh, yes, there's some real systemic injustices here, like once you philosophically or statistically are able to get there, then are you you know, some women are battling silence, like they don't want to rock the boat, like we already talked about. But for me, and mine started a few years ago, actually, after the Ferguson protests is when I kind of really started to learn about things that I had never even had to think about before. But it wasn't only scary to me to post what you're saying or say in conversation what you're saying. I also felt like I was supposed to sit down and shut up. Like I was receiving the messages of like, now is not my time to talk around these issues. Like white people in general have been talking, have been the main narrative, have whitewashed history, have all of those things. So now's your time to sit and be quiet. And Mm -hmm. maybe that's a, that's a real message and that's a a good message, but it's also a message that I was able to hide behind for Mm -hmm. a while and be like, oh yeah, now, now's my time to sit down. Thank God. Right. Let me go turn on Netflix. Yeah. So it's, it's, this is like the complicated end, or I like to call the sacred end. We can do both. We can hold difficult things in the same palm of our hand. We can, we do it constantly. There are moments and I get real, a lot of energy pulsing through my body. When I say this, there are moments when we have no business speaking. We have no business showing up. We have no business taking up space. And sometimes the specific role we're supposed to play in those moments can be not a universal knowing. You can have marginalized representatives who think we should do something differently in any given moment. And you can sit in that contradiction and recognize that it's not really crystal clear what we're supposed to do, but that's not permission to go finish that series that you wanted to on Netflix or to scroll through the wedding section on Instagram. It's not freedom for us to sit down and shut up. We can't because this demographic has too much power and too much influence to not do anything. If it was just like little old you, I'd be like, you know what? We probably are going to be okay either way without. If you want to like go check out and like work on your plank, 
it's fine. We got it. We can't do that. We don't have that luxury. I think we happen to be at a fork in the road that if we don't figure this out, if we don't wrestle the patriarchy, if we don't demand and require and take power into a place of greater equity, and I'm not talking about going from a patriarchy to a matriarchy because that's just another archy and that's not what we need. I can't tell you what the next phase looks like, but what I know is everybody, all of us together have to be linked to arms moving into that direction. And sometimes the way that we're going to move is by being quiet and listening. And sometimes it's screaming at the top of our lungs. For example, when you're out at a bar with your brother and his best friends from high school and you're all just catching up and it's so fun and a hot girl walks in and they, you know, they cat call her. You know, that's our front lines too. And that's not where you're allowed to be quiet, right? I often say like, there's a spectrum of this work for the rest of our lives. There's a spectrum of this work for the rest of our lives. You know that if you see a drowning child, you're not even whipping out your phone out of your pocket, you're jumping in the water, right? You have to act instantly. And then there's the other side of the spectrum where you're like actively teaching a kid how to swim when when it makes sense. And like the spectrum of when to do what, there's a there's a little bit of like, get out of your way and you know when it's time to jump in the water. Like let that mammal instinct jump. And then there's a time when it's like, huh, am I teaching them correctly how to swim? I don't know how to do it. Let me YouTube it. Are they ready to jump in the deep end by themselves and let them sink or swim even though I'm standing right here? Like, obviously, can you tell I'm teaching my kid how to swim? It's not going very well. This idea that like, there's sometimes you're allowed to scream and roar and sometimes you need to be a student. And like we said at the top of this conversation, when it comes to anything under the umbrella of inequity that I have not experienced because of my race, socioeconomic, zip code, all of my lived experiences, I'm listening. I'm listening. And sometimes I'm carrying that message back to a country club. Sometimes I'm carrying that message back to a spa with my girlfriends. Sometimes I'm carrying that message into the HR department and my companies. Sometimes I'm carrying that message to social media. Sometimes I'm carrying that message to like girls night when I'm like three margaritas in. But when I'm in those spaces, I'm probably not talking. So what we can't do is this like, we can't try to figure out how to exactly and perfectly move in every single moment, because I would argue that the country and us as a people, not just Americans, but the global us are trying to figure out whether or not we have the capacity and the will to wrangle our egos enough to make sure our species survives. Not a single one of us not a single religion, not a political institution, not a constitution. Nobody knows how to do this. And we have to give ourselves that grace of grayness as we figure this out. And it also means like we're going to screw up and we're going to do it wrong, right? Like I go back to one of my friends who's um, a police reform activist and what the week after Floyd was murdered, everyone had started posting their eight point or 11 point plans related to police reform. And she posted it on Tuesday. And then on Wednesday, I went to go repost it and I couldn't find it on our feeds. And I texted her. I was like, Hey, where's that eight point plan thing? She goes, Oh, I pulled it down because 0.4 and 0.9 didn't make sense. Now that's not a reason for me to be like, Oh, we're never going to be able to figure this out. She just means like, oh, okay, 
let me wait until the experts figure out what they're going to do in place of point four and point 11 and just lean in harder. Mm-hmm. So there's like those kinds of things that are not going to be easy answers. And then there's going to be the stuff that we say, because language is futile. It does not work. It is not caught up in this moment. I am, I was raised Jewish. I married a Goldberg. I have two kids with the last name Goldberg. I make challah on Fridays and celebrate Shabbat. And I have anti-Semitic biases I have to work on. We use the term around anti-Semitic biases that I have related to my Jewishness and to Jews in general. We use that same description to describe Pier 1 Tiki Torch carrying white supremacists, active Nazis marching in Virginia. And so language isn't really working here. So you're going to mess up. And when you do, the job is not to be like, I'm not qualified, I'm out. It's to say, I'm sorry, what else? Those are the four words that everyone should just be saying constantly. I'm sorry, what else? I'm sorry, what else? And no one needs your justification about why you thought, 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 thought. Like I'm real dangerous on why we all think, think, think. And we don't have time for that. We don't have time for that. That's a perfect place to end. I so appreciate everything that you're saying, what you are teaching us, you know, for those who who want to be able to step in to this and be effective um, and aren't sure how. I appreciate you saying it here. I really appreciate you saying it in your book and coming to be on the show. I think the work that you're doing is really important. So I want to say thank you for that and for being here. Thank you for inviting me into this conversation and to speak with your community. My strong note is, is no one really knows what to do, but what I can tell you with certainty is I would like for you to get out of your own way and join this club, this party, this frontline, that frontline that is often right there in that room with you. We don't have the luxury of of time anymore and nothing, nothing is going back to the way that it was. Yeah, that's right. Jenna, I'm going to be thinking about this conversation for a long time. So I'm so glad we had it. Do you want to tell the listeners where they can find you online and follow you? Of course, in the show notes, everybody, I will link to all of Jenna's channels and for you to purchase her book. But where can we find you on the web? My Instagram handle is at it's Jenna and then Twitter, which I ignore most of the time is just my name, Jenna, J-E-N-N-A Arnold. My book is Raising Our Hands. Um, You can find it at all of your local bookstores and also those places that you can order things really easily from that arrive on your doorstep the next day. It's also there, but you're going to buy it from your local bookstore. Yeah, I'm I'm all about this conversation. I have so many more questions about myself and my identity and I would love to hear people's thoughts on themselves and their purpose and their identity and what it is that they hope to contribute to the world. So, yeah, reach out to me with thoughts. Awesome. And you've just listened to the 10 Things to Tell You podcast. You can find the show notes and subscribe to episode emails at 10thingstotellyou.com slash podcast. And you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at 10 Things to Tell You. Remember, this is an interactive podcast. I have 10 things to tell you, and you have 10 things to tell. So take this topic to your journal or a friend 
or post on social media using the hashtag 10 things to tell you. These episodes are meant to bring connection with others and ourselves and spark better conversations. Thanks for listening. Now go share something.